Our text this morning is the gospel lesson which we just read from John chapter 2. It's a well-known incident of Jesus cleansing or perhaps better clearing out the temple. There were apparently two such incidents in Jesus' ministry. This one, recorded by John, takes place at the outset of his ministry. And the other cleansing, which was recorded in the other three Gospels, takes place at the very end of Jesus' life. So you can bet that after this incident, it didn't take long to return to the status quo. It didn't take long for the tables to be turned upright and for the money changers to be back in business. Nevertheless, I think it's noteworthy that you have this incident bracketing Jesus' public ministry and him taking basically the same action both times. And that should be enough for us to sense that there's something quite significant, something quite important is happening here. So I want to make two points. They're on the back inside page of your bulletin. The temple cleared and the temple replaced. So the first point is the temple cleared. It's almost time, the text says. It's almost time for Passover. So it's spring. It's March, April. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, he finds people selling cattle and sheep and doves as well as all these tables set up for money changers to do their, ply their trade. Now, it's important to see that what's going on here is legitimate activity. Remember, people from all over the country, indeed people from all over the Roman Empire, Jews, Jews from the diaspora, Jews scattered abroad, were required to come to Jerusalem at Passover and make an animal sacrifice. Now remember, now think of this, it would certainly be more convenient, it would be more reasonable to buy the animal locally rather than transport the animal from the far corners of the country or some other place in the empire. So the the sellers of sheep and cattle and doves, they're doing a necessary service for the temple worship, and the money changers too, they're not doing anything illicit. The various currencies would have to be exchanged to buy the animals locally. Just like you do if you arrive in a foreign airport, you need to make an exchange to get the local currency. So you need the services of the money changers. In addition, there was an annual temple tax imposed on all adult males that was collected at this time. And the temple authorities only took a certain type of coin, a certain a coin with a certain level of purity and a certain amount of silver in it. So you'd have to make an exchange to pay the temple tax. So, in addition to this, the money changers certainly charged a commission, and the buyers and sellers of the animals certainly made some profit. But there's no indication, none at all, in the text, that there's some sort of graft or corruption here or that some sort of gouging is going on. The problem here is in the opening words of verse 14. This is the problem. In the temple courts. Right? That's where this hubbub, this uh, church bazaar, is happening. It is location that is the issue in this text. 
Prior to this, this buying and selling was done across the Kidron Valley over on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. So, you know, a mile and a half away. So it was close to the temple, but it was comfortably removed. That's where it was done for a good while. Now it's been moved inside the temple courts. And the temple courts here refers to the outer courts, what was known as the court of the Gentiles. And so when you fill this area up with stalls and tables and animals and merchants, etc., right, it makes it impossible for the Gentiles to worship, to pray, to meditate during the temple liturgy. And it's this corruption, this corruption of God's house, which provokes Jesus here. I mean, imagine trying to worship where you're hearing the clamor of animals and the clanging of coins, right? And all this buzzing of commerce and trade. I mean, they used to have it in the right spot, but the temple authorities, I don't know, maybe they thought they were being seeker-friendly. Maybe they were trying to be relevant. Maybe they're just meeting the, the needs of the ordinary people, make church more convenient. They found a new way to do church, as folks today like to say. What's the problem? And and Jesus responds to this situation with a kind of ferocity and a kind of righteous indignation that perhaps seems at first hard to understand. The reaction seems all out of proportion to the crime. But it's not. The beginning of verse 15, has always intrigued me, and I notice commentators just tend to slide right past it, trying to get to what they perceive to be the point. The beginning of verse 15, he made a whip out of cords. Really? Jesus? Jesus meek and mild? Kind, compassionate, gentle Jesus. He made a whip out of cords? I mean, think about this. I mean, he could have written a letter of protest. He could have went, seriously went, and had a word with the temple authorities. He could have gone into the court of the Gentiles and tried to reason with the sellers and the money changers. He could have preached... He could have stood up in the middle of the temple court and raised his voice against this abuse. It's not like he didn't have options. He devises another plan. Maybe he knew nothing else would get people's attention. Other methods will be futile. Maybe he watched this enough and thought, I'm going to have to throw some stuff around here. And so he decides, Jesus decides on a personal homemade whip. I mean, you can't buy one. He doesn't borrow one from somebody. It's not like you're going to find one lying around. He made his own whip out of cords. You know what this tells us? He's really mad. He's furious. But this is not flying off the handle. You know what this is? Slow, 
steady burn. He made a whip out of cords. Cords? Perhaps leather cords? Strands of rope? Now picture this. Jesus in the middle of the large crowd conceives the idea for a handmade whip. And now you have Jesus wandering around the temple precincts, scavenging for the raw material for his personal whip-making project. Where did he go? He's over there. He's over there. He's picking some stuff over there. He's wandering down over here. He's looking for strands of leather and rope. And then he finds a place to sit down. And then he takes those calloused carpenter hands and he starts weaving the strands together. How long shall I make it? How thick should it be? How much shall it sting? How shall I make the handle? Slow, steady, burning. This is the Lamb of God ready to show that he's a lion. He drove, the text says, all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. And the whip was probably made for driving the animals, obviously probably not the people, out. But clearly those selling the animals are driven out by the overall fury as well. And then... He scatters the coins of the money changers. That's not nice. Right? These people love coins. They're coin dealers. They collected coins as children. I'm sure they had their coins neatly stacked up, maybe in nice trays to make it easy to make change. And Jesus grabs this stuff and starts sweeping it off the table and throwing it around the temple Precincts, with his arms flailing and fistfuls of coin flying everywhere, people and animals scurrying. Right, you wonder, did he think about his physical safety? Did he think, I'm walking into a situation here, it's about 20 to 1. There's 20 guys in there, and another 50 people, and there's me with my homemade whip. These are bad odds, right? If you want to make a scene, you don't walk into a place where you're outnumbered. He's unconcerned. He's unconcerned about his physical safety. This is, among other things, not just an act of fury. It's an act of courage. If you've ever been in a fist fight when you're outnumbered, you know this is an act of courage. I think he's thinking, these are money changers. What harm can they do me? Then he takes their tables. Their tables, which have no longer have any coins on them. He already swept the coins off and threw them off. Then he takes the barren table and flips it over. I mean, you can picture one of these money changers, right, thinking, was that really necessary? I mean, you already threw my coins all over the place. Right? So he takes care of the cattle. He takes care of the sheep. He takes care of the money changers, all their money, all their tables. What's left? The doves. Well, you know, you can't drive the doves out with a whip. 
and you can't pick them up and throw them around. So he turns to those who sold the doves and he says, get these out of here. And then he says, the text says to all, to everyone in there, stop turning my father's house into a market. Jesus is never, ever, ever this demonstrably angry in the Gospels again. And he is angry quite a bit. But here you have white hot indignation. And in this last phrase that he says, you are at the root of it. This is my father's house. Get this stuff out of here. So in crowding the Gentiles out of the outer courts, right, the temple authorities just thought, we're just, we're just engaged in an act of economic convenience, efficiency. They violated one of the basic purposes of the temple, the worship of Jesus' father. There is a deep, long background here that Jesus knows. When Solomon prayed his famous prayer of dedication when the temple was built, he includes in that prayer foreigners, Gentiles, he says, those not of the people of Israel who would come to this temple and they would hear of the Lord's great name and they would worship. And Solomon in the prayer prays for God to hear them that all the peoples of the earth, all the peoples of the earth may know God and fear his name. And that space is being crowded out. And Isaiah 56, a passage, by the way, which Jesus cites in the other temple clearing at the end of his ministry. That passage says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So the temple, including the outer court, is holy ground. And it's been desecrated. This is, in Jesus' eyes, a pollution of the public worship of God, an affront to God's holiness and his majesty, his lordship over the nations. And Jesus is speaking here as the unique, the only begotten son of the Father. For him, in an utterly singular way, this is his father's house. Remember remember when he was 12, Right? His parents lost him, and they went back, and they found him at, this is an earlier Passover, they found him in the temple. And you remember what he said, right? I, do I not have to be about my father's business? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? So this is the son who speaks for the father because he's one with the father. And he takes this profaning of this ground personally, obviously. Deeply so. What we have here is what was prophesied in the prophet Malachi. The Lord will come to his temple, his temple, as a refiner's fire. And the text tells us in verse 17 that his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. It's a citation. We heard it read this morning in the Old Testament lesson. It's from Psalm 69. David is suffering unjustly in the text for his fidelity. Yahweh, the Old Testament tells us, is zealous for his name. There's a sort of fire that God has for the integrity of his own glory. And what you have in this text is Yahweh incarnate 
demonstrating the fierce passion that he has for the public worship of the living God. This is lost, I think, on a lot of moderns, but God is particular about his worship. The son's deepest hatred in the Gospels is reserved for what people probably thought was a minor logistical matter. I mean, think of all the people, all the practices, all the countercultural things that Jesus embraces that got the religious authorities mad, right? And they're cool with this, and Jesus is ferociously angry with this. So, this zeal that Jesus shows here, this passion, will consume him. Not only in the sense that it eats him up, right? He's ablaze with this unquenchable zeal for the purity of his father's house. But also, it will consume him in the sense that it will be the death of him. Right? His zeal for the temple is going to provoke lethal hostility. It will lead to his execution. The very next line in Psalm 69, it was in our reading this morning. After the zeal for your house will consume me, the next line is this. The reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. Paul cites that in the book of Romans, of Christ's passion, of his death. So that's the temple cleared out. The second point is the temple replaced. It begins in verse 18. The, the, temp, the Jews, the temple authorities, responded to him, and they say, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? In other words, you're not authorized to come in here and stop, start flipping tables over. Right? So they want a sign. Everyone seems to crave signs. Jesus will give signs. He will. But he gives them when and where and how he chooses. He makes it very clear in John's gospel, he's not an errand boy and he's not a stuntman. He doesn't respond to requests from his enemies, especially when it comes to signs. Besides, he's already given the sign of his authority to do this in the very act of cleansing the temple and saying, it's my father's house. So this is a text. Notice this. The issue in this text is authority. It's authority. What sign will you give us to prove your authority to do this? And so the question, and by the way, this is a big question in the Gospels, especially in John. The question is this. Who has authority over the temple? To whom does the temple belong? Jesus stakes his claim. And try and put yourself back in the shoes of the temple authorities because it's an astonishing claim. Right? You can only imagine them being bewildered, thinking, this guy thinks the temple is somehow his own personal property. Right, that, that it's his realm because God is somehow his unique father. And so Jesus offers them a sign, if you will. But it's not the sign they have in mind. He says, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. Now, this is one of these cases where surely Jesus knows he's going to be misunderstood. He's setting up the fact that the temple is a type, a picture, a pointer to his own physical body. And as expected, he's misunderstood. The people don't get it. They don't get the connection. 
But I can tell you this. They will eventually get the nature of the claim that he's making. Because both here and at his trial and at the foot of the cross, if you look through the Gospels, you will see that this claim about destroying the temple comes up. They did not forget that this is an audacious, even blasphemous claim. And this claim is part of his conviction and his execution. It's a deeply offensive sign. Jesus knows it. And so they say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? They're referring to the fact that Herod, Herod was a builder. Actually, one thing he did well, actually. Herod was a, a builder, and he started major renovations on the temple around 19 B.C. So 19 B.C. to about 28 B.C., where we are here, that's 46 years. Most of the work was done quickly, but the work was still kind of going on. It's a construction project that lingered for a long time. Most of the work was done the first five to ten years, but 46 years later, they were still touching this up and touching that up. Um, and so that's, they're thinking it took 46 years to build. You're going you're gonna to raise it in three days, destroy it and raise it in three days? Verse 21, but Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. Now, I know we're past the excitement in this text, but this is the crux of the text right here. This is the crux. This is what is called a typological understanding of the Old Testament temple, meaning this. The Old Testament temple is a type or a picture or a foreshadowing of the very body of Christ. This is very important in John. Remember, In the prologue to John's gospel, in the opening, the glorious opening in chapter 1, he tells us that Jesus is the tabernacle in which the glory of God dwells. And he's unpacking the significance of that throughout his gospel. He, we've already learned this in John's gospel, he's the place where heaven and earth meet in the vision that he speaks of to Nathaniel at the end of chapter 1. He's the living embodiment of the tabernacle and the temple. Now, to you and I, this claim may seem prosaic, but it is an astounding claim. So, the Jerusalem temple, then, is being replaced. Its purpose is fulfilled by Jesus' body. I mean, just imagine that, right? He's standing there saying, you see this magnificent temple complex? It's going to be replaced by this. You know, a five-foot, ten-inch Jewish carpenter. My body will replace this structure that David built. And that's been rebuilt and renovated, and that's a thousand years old. Destroy this temple, then, refers to his crucifixion. Raise it again in three days to his resurrection. Jesus is not so much cleansing the temple in this passage as judging the temple. There will be another temple, Jesus says, because there will be another sacrifice. Jesus is both the final sacrifice, destroy this temple, and the new glorious messianic temple, I will raise it up again. And so John is unpacking this story. At Cana, we saw this last week, Jesus manifested his glory. This text points to the apex of that glory in his resurrection. Both signs tell us. Both signs. See, John doesn't pick his signs randomly. 
these signs in John's Gospel are thematically tied together. And they're both telling us that the old age, the age of Jewish ritual and temple sacrifice is now superseded. The temple is judged and replaced. So I want to close with four quick applications. They're simple. The first one is this. Jesus. If your Jesus can't do this, cleanse the temple with holy violence, then you need another Jesus. Right? There's a lot of people whose Jesus can't do this and wouldn't do this and wouldn't even think about doing this. Our vision of Jesus has to incorporate this kind of indignation. He is meek. He is full of mercy. And guess what? This is what meekness and mercy look like when his father's house is defiled. Right? His anger is proportioned properly. Right? Jesus is angry about the highest things, the grandest things, the most exalted things, and he's largely indifferent about a lot of other things. Right? His anger is tempered. Ours is often disordered, whereas we're indifferent often to the highest things and ferociously angry about some small detail over here or some little thing over there. Right? One of the great lessons of this text is is that God wants to proportion your anger. He wants us to be angry about the things he's angry about and indifferent about the things he's indifferent about and modestly concerned about the things he's modestly concerned about. And we see that here. Second thing is signs. Jesus will do miracles in this gospel, but he clearly expects, he says so, he expects to be believed, he prefers, if you will, to be believed on the authority of his word. There's a kind of craving for signs, which is a juvenile thing. Especially when the great sign of the resurrection has been given and will only be given once. And that brings me to the third application, the temple. The temple. Christians, a lot of American Christians, I guess, seem obsessed with Israel and getting the temple rebuilt. I find this strange, but I understand. You get into various systems of thought and things get re-architected. But what this text says is that the messianic, eschatological, promised temple in Ezekiel has already been rebuilt. It was destroyed in Jesus' death, and it's raised anew in his resurrection. And his death entails the destruction of the old temple in 70 A.D. The New Testament says this over and over and over. To seek another temple is to despise our Lord's work. It's to Judaize. It's to make the history of redemption go backwards. It's to completely misunderstand the meaning of this passage. Fourth and final application here is worship. God is zealous for the purity of his worship. In a way that it turns out we may not because we think, hey, you know, Different strokes for different folks. These folks like to worship that way. They do church this way. We do that. But public worship is holy ground. It's a place of prayer and adoration and holy proclamation. It is not, Jesus thinks, the place for our inventiveness or our ingenuity. It's the place of obedience to simple, sort of meat and potato 
yet mighty ordinances of word and sacrament and prayer and confession, song. Right? For the Christian tradition, worship is the center. Public worship is the center which nourishes the whole of the Christian life, the whole of the community. We come into worship and we're refreshed. We go out into the world. We come back to worship. We go back out. It's the center of the hub. And if we don't see it in this sort of exalted way, Jesus' anger will kind of remain a mystery to us. Right? We have to treat it as a sacred, holy thing marked off from the world and from all of its concerns. Right, that's why we have a prelude. That's why we have a prelude. You'll see the note in the front of your bulletin. Please use the prelude as a time of silent preparation for the worship of the triune God. I mean, it's wonderful to have fellowship time with your brothers. But when the prelude starts, it's time for silence. Because the Lord is in his holy temple, Habakkuk says. Let all the earth be silent before him. Worship is about silence, interior and exterior silence, before it is about opening our mouths in praise. And so, we who through the Spirit are the body of Christ, we are the body of Christ, the temple, should have a zeal for the house of God, which, by the way, is not the building. It would be a grave mistake to take this text and make it about not liking something in the physical structure here. It's about the public worship of God. And Jesus, still raised, has this passion. He still exercises this concern. It's the same Jesus, though with his sheep, he's very gentle. Right? We could say that he comes with the whip of the word and sacraments to cleanse our hearts of every profane distraction. He uses this whip. The whip of the text of Holy Scripture and the whip of, of the sacrament. Right? So that we might worship in spirit and truth. The temple, the temple, has been destroyed. The temple, the temple has been raised, and you have been incorporated into that temple. Worship God and give him glory. Amen. Amen.